am Sassanax. It's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassanax Files. This week, I'm discussing 602 Allegiance. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassanax Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure to head over to both Facebook and Instagram to follow the Sassanax Files and make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander Season 7 and anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of Season 6, Episode 2, Allegiance. What a humdinger of an episode. I know that a lot of people really liked the premiere, and I thought it was okay. I thought that it was a decent episode. I'm not going to say that I was overly impressed with 601. However, I feel like this episode, 602, was a general step in the right direction. I was increasingly impressed with every episode in season six, I think, with one exception, that being 604. I wasn't a huge fan of that episode, but we can talk about that more when we get there. This episode, Allegiance, I honestly was really a fan of. I felt like it took all of our main characters, all of our main couples, whether that's Jamie and Claire, Fergus and Marsley, Roger and Bree, and it furthered their story. And I think that's one of the highlights of this season for me personally, was that it was a very intimate season. And it really took time to focus on these couples that we've grown to love and their relationships with each other and how their strengths and weaknesses affect those around them. It was gold, honestly. It was one of my favorite things about season six, that we really had the time and the writers took the effort to explore those things. There were a lot of things that I loved about this episode. There's tons of stuff to talk about, so I won't waste time paraphrasing. I'll just jump right in. Let's start out with the title card because as a book reader, there are moments in the show that you see these little nods like, yeah, we see you that the showrunners put in. And the title card, as it so often is, was one of those moments with We Add Zoe curled up in Major McDonald's coat. And it's something that we actually see play out in the show, but Adzo and Major McDonald in the books have much more of an adversarial relationship. And so every time I see anything to do with Adzo and Major McDonald, it makes me smile because I can just envision all the craziness that ensues because of literally Adzo's need to antagonize Major McDonald and his obsession with Major McDonald's wig in the books. It's so fantastic. And I know there's not ever a way that they could have trained a cat to perform in the actions that Adzo takes in the books. I get that. So I like that Major McDonald's allergies to Adzo was their way of kind of keeping that tension between those two quote unquote characters alive and well for us as book readers. So I love the title card. It was a fantastic start to this episode. Second thing that I didn't notice at first or even the second watch, but this was, it was either my third or fourth watch this time around. And I noticed so many callbacks to season one in this episode to the point where I was almost feeling nostalgic, like, oh my God, now I want to go back and watch season one. When Claire is working on Tom Christie's hand. And Claire wants to heal Tom's crippled hand, the one that has Dupuytren's contracture. And he doesn't want her to fix it. He says, no, if it's God's will for me to have this infirmity, then I'll just deal with it. And she says, hmm, that's funny, because if it was God's will that your goat break her leg, then I guess you should have let her die. But Given his famed regard for the smallest of sparrows, are you saying that you're less important than your goat? (laughs) And just proceeds to have this argument with him. Claire deeply frustrates Tom, but also kind of fascinates him at the same time. Tom brings up the letter from St. Paul to Timothy saying, let a woman learn in silence. 
This is the same letter that Rupert referenced to Claire in the very first episode of season one, Sassanac, where Claire is healing Jamie after he falls off his horse. Rupert says, St. Paul says, let a woman be silent. And she says, you can mind your own bloody business and so can St. Paul. And they all just go, (gasps) like, look at each other like, what is happening here? (laughs) So that was the first little nod to season one. And it just brought up so many fantastic things that really looked at the whole theme of everything changes, but some things stay the same. I really loved that in this scene with Tom, where Claire is going back and forth with him, Malva is really just lapping this up, taking it in, because never in her life has she met a woman that could go toe-to-toe with any man. And I think that's the kind of woman that she wishes she could be. So to see Claire be that person really fascinates her on a million different levels. Not only is Claire not afraid of men and to argue with them and have conversation with them, she's also a healer and she's so impressive. She's such a role model for Malva. But I think that Tom sees how much Malva is basically beginning to obsess over Claire and it makes him very uncomfortable. He does not like it at all because he doesn't like women that he can't control. He doesn't feel like that's a solid function in this world to have women with independent thought. And so the fact that his daughter could potentially become one of those women really scares him, I think. So he kind of just is like, no, we're not having this. The devil finds work for idle hands, Malva. (laughs) Go help your brother. We constantly see Malva evolve through this season, particularly in this episode. We start to see her come out of her shell a little bit. She becomes a little bit more rebellious in a sense that she's doing things for herself. She's been the meek and obedient type for most of her life. I mean, she's probably only 17, 18 at this point. But Claire brings her out of her shell and makes her want more for herself, I think. And the fact that Claire encourages her curiosity and her independence and her intelligence, it really forms this bond between these two characters that I don't necessarily know that we got fully in this season just as show watchers. And I don't know, maybe that's something that you guys can tell me. As show watchers, do you feel like the relationship between Claire and Malva was developed enough for us to have that payoff at the end of the season? Tell me what you think. Drop it in the comments. As far as the Christies go, Alan is also a conundrum. I'm so torn. Like, I feel like he's been kind of smothered by his father, but he's being a little bit two-faced about how he actually feels about Tom. He pretends to be this living in his father's shadow, shooting for the stars, wanting to be Tom Christie. But in reality, I think that he's his own person and he kind of struggles with letting that show. But I don't know, like, I feel like of all the Christies, Alan is probably the most screwed up, if that makes sense. Some of you may get that a little bit more than others, and I think we'll get more answers to that in season seven. He's a hard one to put your finger on. I 100% think that he is the one that is spreading the witchcraft rumor about Claire. It's never really clarified in the show, at least up until this point where we're at, at the end of season six. However, there were a couple of things in this episode that kind of pointed to that. The first was that when Claire is leaving the Christie shack and she asks Alan, how's your back? And he said, oh, it's better. The salve that you gave me helped. And Malva kind of pipes up and she's like, we were just talking about how fascinating it is that you're a healer, given that you're a woman. Alan says, particularly when a lot of people would think that a woman physician would be involved in witchcraft. And that's kind of like the first little Claire's like, what the hell? Seriously, I'm helping your father heal his hand. And you're going to sit there and say that I could potentially be involved in witchcraft because I'm a woman and I'm a physician. Later on, you know, we get the whole scene with Claire saying, I was asked never to darken the door of the church again, because apparently some of the settlers think that I'm a witch. When Jamie goes to visit the church at the end of the episode and Tom and Alan and Hiram Crombie and a bunch of other people are there, Tom comes down to talk to Jamie. And the situation is very polite 
almost cordial at times, but there's this undercurrent of hostility, like Jamie putting his foot down, saying, I'm the alpha dog here, and you're going to toe the line, Tom Christie, basically. (laughs) Remember your Freemason's vow. This is going to be a meeting place, not a Protestant church. This whole conversation is happening, and Jamie says, because this is a meeting place, that means that every man, woman, and child can enter this building freely with God in their heart, including my wife. And if I hear anyone accuse her of witchcraft again, dot, dot, dot. And he looks at Tom, and then he glances over Tom's shoulder at Alan. I think... Jamie knows that whatever rumors are circulating out there in the Fraser's Ridge community about witchcraft, somebody told him that Alan Christie is the one that started that rumor. And I think it's all because Alan can see, just as Tom can see, that Malva is drifting closer and closer to Claire, gravitating towards her because A, Malva doesn't have a mother figure, And B, she's everything that Malva wants to be. And Alan and Tom don't want that. They don't think that it's proper. There are other reasons at play as well that I will not get into because it borders book territory. But suffice it to say that the very last thing that they want for Malva is to be like Claire Fraser. Given some things that happen in the future episodes coming up, I really don't think it was Tom that started that rumor. I really do think it was Alan. Jamie has a very interesting experience as Indian agent the first go around, which culminates in the Indian lassies being sent to his hut. (laughs) It's a funny scene. I don't think it landed the same way in the show as it did in the books. I'm not quite sure why that is. I just didn't find it as funny in the show. I don't know whether it was because of the writing. I don't know. But what I do know is that it got funnier as the scene went along. Jamie's sitting there cross-legged with his blanket tucked around his legs trying to protect his virtue. I mean, you can't help but giggle, right? This big, strong man that's like, don't touch me because I'm married and I've swore an oath of fidelity to my wife, just with his hands crossed across his his privates and looking ashamed and kind of translating and saying that one of them says she's disappointed because you have a very nice, you know... (laughs) And then the other one's more philosophical. She's like, well, maybe I would have borne you children, but of course they could have had red hair. And he's like, what's wrong with red hair? (laughs) He's like, well, I just gather it's not something that you want your child to be born with. And he's like, well, there's no chance of that now, is there? So that whole portion of the scene was funny. The actual part where Jamie wakes up and finds the ladies in his bed and all of that, in my opinion, felt kind of forced and not 100% natural. But honestly, the most hilarious part of that entire scene for me was Ian's reluctance to help Jamie out just because he knew how much Jamie was struggling, like how uncomfortable his uncle was. He was really beating around the bush, like, Okay, well, I don't really know any Cherokee. I just speak Mohawk, but I guess I can try to help you out. It <laughs> translates just fine for his uncle. And then as he's escorting the ladies out, he's laughing his behind off. And Jamie's like, you'd be advised to stifle your glee. <laughs> or I'm going to kick your ass, basically. I feel like this episode did a lot to build the relationship between Jamie and Ian because last season was really about building community. Ian came back in the eighth episode of 12 episodes in season five, and there was a lot that went on in those last four episodes. So I get that they didn't really have time to build that bond back up, that Jamie and Ian had in season three and in season four. So I felt like this episode was a chance to do that. With Ian having experienced everything he's experienced with the Mohawk, he's in a very good place to kind of be Jamie's companions on these Indian agent trips. I'm kind of disappointed that they didn't make Jamie a polyglot in the show like they did in the books. 
I don't know whether they thought it was unrealistic or what, but he picks up languages like a sponge. He's fluent in English, Gallic, French, Latin, Greek, Cherokee, and speaks a little bit of Chinese in the books. One of the reasons they don't make him fluent in Cherokee in the show is so that Ian has this role to play with him as his companion on these Indian agent voyages. I appreciate Jamie and Ian's relationship a lot more in the show as we progress through season six because I feel like the relationship that we had between Jamie and Ian in earlier seasons was that of a father-son relationship and this is them kind of getting to reacquaint with each other as two men on an even playing field. They've both been through shit now. Ian's not the naive young boy that he was at the end of season four when he was left with the Mohawk. And I think that we're gradually becoming more and more aware of that as season six progresses. And that's his big story with this episode in particular is that Ian very much disagrees with Jamie on how to handle the whole question of whether to give guns to the Cherokee. It's a thing where, as Indian agent, Jamie is the representative of the crown to the Cherokee nations, and particularly the band of snowbird Cherokee that Chief Bird Who Sings in the Morning is the chief of. And his brother Stillwater is basically the war chief, as I understand it. So these are the two men that they were meeting with at the beginning of this episode. They request guns because despite their agreement with the crown, the crown is not holding up their end of the bargain. The deal was that there would be a treaty line posted and that no one would cross that treaty line into Cherokee territory. But what's happening is white settlers are consistently pushing that boundary, settling on the other side, planting crops, building cabins, taking game out of their hunting grounds. And it's not cool. It's very much upsetting the Cherokee way of life. All they want is the ability to protect their land and to protect their families. They don't think that that's too much to ask of the crown to give them these weapons, considering the crown already promised that this wouldn't happen and broke that promise. I think Jamie understands that portion of it. Where Jamie's struggling is Jamie also knows the future. He knows that the American Revolution is coming and he knows what side of the revolution he will personally be on. What he doesn't know is what side are the Cherokee going to fall on? Because if the crown gives them weapons, likely they will feel an allegiance to the crown. If the crown doesn't give them weapons... Likely, the Cherokee will be so pissed off at the crown that they will side with the rebels and fight with Jamie. Jamie doesn't want to arm these Native Americans only to have those guns pointed back at him in two years' time. So it's a very complex situation, this back and forth that Jamie is once again playing. This is something that Ian doesn't really understand. Yes, he knows that Claire and Brianna and Roger are time travelers, But he hasn't been made privy to the results of this impending war. Bree told him in 511, Journey Cake, that there would be a war, but she didn't tell him who would win, what the outcome would be. When Jamie relays the news to Major McDonald that the Cherokee don't really know what they want, but what they do want is for settlers to stop crossing the treaty line. And Major McDonald's like, are you suggesting we send soldiers? And Ian interjects and he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Forgive me, uncle, but they did say what they wanted. There is such great byplay in that scene. You've got Major McDonald, whose allergies are wreaking havoc with him. And then all the while, you've got Jamie and Ian making faces at each other. Jamie's like, shut up. Ian's like, what are you doing? It's all so subtle. But the facial expressions are all there. And I think John Bell and Sam Hewen did a fantastic job communicating everything that was going on without explicitly saying in front of Major McDonald that Jamie is not being honest and relaying information as it was given to him by the Native Americans, which is his job. When Major McDonald passes out of the room, Ian walks over to Jamie and Jamie finally tells him, look, I can't request weapons 
because I don't know what side the Cherokee are going to choose. And I'm going to have to be a rebel because the rebels are the ones that win the revolution. This all blows Ian's mind, blows his mind. Like many people in that time in history, I don't think he had any clue, any hope or wildest dream that the people that were for liberty, the rebels, had a hope in hell of beating the British. I really don't think he did. So to hear that not only will the British lose, but that a new country will form out of this revolution, the United States of America, and they will have no king, that intrigues Ian. And all of a sudden, he kind of sees what Jamie is struggling with so much. While he understands Jamie's frustrations and he understands Jamie's hesitations, it doesn't mean that he agrees with him. And so we're seeing this constant butting of heads between Jamie and Ian for the rest of the episode. Ian kind of backs off a little bit while this season explores the relationship with Jamie and Ian. It also allows Ian to fully develop in the eyes of the viewer as a man. He comes back into the show and he is a man. He's been through some shit, let me tell you. And we learn more about that in 604. But we haven't seen that growth on the screen quite yet. I think to a lot of viewers, he's still young Ian. This is the episode where we really see him in a different light. When he confers with Brianna and she tells him about the Trail of Tears, he says, I'm sorry. And she says, well, what are you apologizing for? And he says, because now that I know what happens, I'm responsible too. It's really interesting, honestly, because when Jamie comes home from his first visit with the Cherokee, after the whole Indian Lassie debacle, he has a conversation with Claire where he asks her if she happens to know what side the Cherokee will choose, which she doesn't. And I think that was a good move on the show's part to have her not know what happens because Claire is not Encyclopedia Britannica. (laughs) And the idea that a doctor that was raised in Great Britain would have any clue what happens to the Snowbird Cherokee in the United States in the year 17-whatever is pretty unfeasible, in my opinion. So I'm glad that they had her just say, you know, I don't know. I'm sorry. I think that was way better. And I do think that it also proves a point that Claire doesn't have the answers to everything. As much as she knew about the Jacobite rising and everything the last time they were in a situation like this, she still didn't know everything about it. She didn't know enough about it to really make a difference in the long run. So it's an interesting conversation, but there is one line in particular that Jamie has where he says, before I became an Indian agent, I had no question what a man might need to defend himself. But once again, I'm wrestling with my conscience. That pretty much sums up this entire episode for Jamie, because the only reason that he is struggling at all with whether to give these Native Americans weapons is because he's afraid of who these people are going to side with in the end. What he comes to realize by the end of this episode is that giving weapons to these people, it's not about political alliances. It's actually much simpler than that. What it's about is family. In all that time when Ian was away becoming a man, like I said, he had a family. He had a child with his wife. Jamie didn't know any of that this whole time. But what that news did to Jamie, it changed everything. It really hit home with him that I'm making this into something way more complicated than it is. Up until this point, he never argued with Jamie over any decision he ever made. And so for this to be a sticking point really confused him. When Bird and Stillwater showed up at Fraser's Ridge and were pissed off that Jamie didn't relay their request for weapons, Ian's like, you know what? I have to act. I will get these people guns if it kills me because... I know what happens to them. And how could I not act? How could I let that happen to my family? I have to give them every chance. 
to defend themselves. Even if it's not going to work, even if it's probably fruitless, I have to try. It's the same mentality that Jamie and Claire had about changing history and saving Scotland because they knew that it probably wasn't going to work, but they had to try. When Jamie learned this, that he fights for them because they're his family, Jamie has an allegiance to Ian for the very same reason. So in the end, It was actually a relatively simple decision. Come what may, I'm doing what's best for my family. And I'm supporting Ian because I owe that to him. It's really, honestly, a beautiful moment. I think Ian struggles a lot with who he is now that he's back at the Ridge. And he has a beautiful arc over the course of the season. But this is the first step in really seeing him take on this new role within the family, a very adult role. So... I've talked about it a couple of times, but when Jamie comes back from the Cherokee visit after resisting two naked ladies in his bed, all he's been thinking about for like the whole trip back to the ridge is his pent up sexual frustrations. So when he gets back to the ridge, I honestly think this is probably one of the most hilarious moments of the episode for me. When he is just hellbent, he's like walking up the porch, yelling for Claire, Sassanac, Claire. And he comes in and Mrs. Bug's like, welcome home, Mr. Fraser. And he tosses his coat (laughs) at her and runs up the stairs. (laughs) I've heard some people say that they didn't really think that that was very Jamie. They don't think that he would behave in that manner. But I thought it was so Jamie. When he gets a one-track mind about sex, that's all he thinks about. And he's just like, hey, Mrs. Bug, hang this up, will ya? And he just runs in the opposite direction because he knows Claire is upstairs waiting for him. And literally the first words out of his mouth are, I missed you, Sassanac. I must have you. It's such a good scene. And one of the most beautiful parts of the scene for me, honestly, was the choreography. Jamie walks around the table all the while, like loosening his belt and taking off his jacket. And Claire is being so playful with him. She backs around the table in front of him, kind of like almost toying with him and running away from him, but in like a playful manner. And she finally tosses her blanket or sheet or whatever in the wardrobe and they get down to business. But it was honestly so cute. There was something so fluid and natural and playful about that scene. We don't get very many playful scenes between Jamie and Claire. That's really something that we got a little bit of in the early days of their marriage. And we get a couple of scenes here and there. Turtle Soup, that's a very playful sex scene as well. But we really haven't seen a good, playful, natural Jamie and Claire even interlude scene in a hot minute. And so I really appreciated that about this scene. And not only did I find the choreography really great for that reason, I found it really great because it was a phenomenal way to hide Katrina's baby bump without making it seem like the typical, you know, house plant in front of the person shots. It was very, very well done. And I really did like it. What I liked even more was the fact that this was yet another callback to season one in that we hear Jamie and Claire having sex and kind of banging around and stuff upstairs And we get the view from Mrs. Bug where she looks up and smiles. And that was something that we saw in the very first episode, again, of season one, when Frank and Claire are having sex in the room above and Mrs. Baird looks up and smiles. It gave me the exact same heart-swelling moment. Just so happy. To see them have a happy moment, you know? This is a moment where we really get back to what we love about Jamie and Claire as well. The reference to witchcraft that I was talking about earlier in the episode, that was also kind of a callback to season one. I think one thing that they really try to do in the show in general is to constantly reference the show and the world that they've created, but also to recall Scotland 
I really do think that that's one purpose of the Fisher Folk is to kind of bring that back front and center to the world of Outlander, like that superstitious nature, the strict, staunch religion, the judgment of anything, quote unquote, other. Those are all things that Claire experienced firsthand in season one when she was very new to the 18th century and still kind of getting her bearings. These are all things that are coming back up again years and years and years later, like decades later and in a different country because all of these people are coming over from the old country. So that reference to witchcraft, Claire being accused of witchcraft to further that, is very much an echo of the things that we experienced in season one with the witch trials. And I think that fear is something that motivates Jamie and kind of scares him a little bit. Like he was already struggling with the Fisher folk and their differences from everyone else on the ridge and kind of how they follow Tom Christie around like a little puppy. Those are things that he was already struggling with. But then you add in the fact that Claire's already been accused of witchcraft once and she almost died because of it. Jamie doesn't want to see that happen again. And so he's very much trying to put a stopper on it before it happens. The other callback we get to season one is when Tom attempts to whip Malva. I felt like the belting of a female in general was a callback to the whipping scene that we got between Jamie and Claire. But I felt like these scenes were mirrors of each other in that the scene between Jamie and Claire was very much a young husband putting forth the disciplining of his wife because it was what was expected of him, not necessarily because it was the action that he personally wanted to take. Like Jamie was reluctant, but he knew it was expected of him to perform this action. Mirroring that, we get a father disciplining his daughter very much in the traditional way. The difference being that Claire actually did something that could justifiably be argued she deserved that punishment or a punishment in some way, shape, or form. This scene between Tom and Malva, Malva didn't do anything. And Tom is taking out his frustrations at Jamie on Malva. It's a very difficult scene to watch because you know the motivations behind it. I think that Jamie's reluctance and sense of duty made the belting scene in season one easier to swallow, I guess. I wouldn't say that it's great to watch. Like, I love that scene. I don't. But I definitely think it was easier to watch than the scenes with Tom beating Malva just because we're not really seeing anything that she's done that deserved repercussions of any sort. And to see that this scene is the follow-up of the scene where Jamie kind of takes Tom down a peg and basically reminds him of his own impotence in the grand scheme of Fraser's Ridge, that maddens Tom to no end. He cannot stand feeling powerless And so he comes back home and he's already seething. And then he finds that this milk has turned and that Malva hasn't made it into butter yet. He sees her idleness as a result of him allowing her to spend time with Mistress Fraser, who's filling her head with nonsense. And so Tom's frustration at Jamie bleeds over into Tom's frustration of Claire, which bleeds over into Tom's frustration of Malva. And Malva's the only one that he can take it out on. He turns to beating his daughter with a belt to kind of give him that sense of agency or to take back his manhood. In the end, all it does is make him feel even more powerless because he's so incapable of holding a belt with his maimed hand that he can't even do that. Ironically enough, who does he go to? Claire, the person that he blamed his daughter's idleness on in the first place. It's just so crazy. This section of events, like I get that Tom is a flawed character, and that's probably an understatement. But this sequence of events is what I think people struggle with in who Tom ends up being at the end of the season and will be at the beginning of season seven, I think. That's going to get in the way because people aren't just going to forget that this happened. 
you know? And his actions kind of get even worse over the next couple of episodes. So I think it'll definitely be interesting to see how this shakes out across the fandom. Roger and Brie are an interesting storyline over the course of this episode. I said it last episode, I feel like Roger and Brie are kind of a constant for people in this season. There isn't a lot of drama going on with them. And I think we see their relationship develop and they're really steadfast. And what we see in this episode is them really starting to have their feet under them. You see, Brie has embraced her mother's advice and she's gone forward with her inventions and she's created matches, which I think just kind of blows Roger's mind. She is so intelligent and he understands that about her. And he knows that there's no way in hell he could do the things that she does. He couldn't create matches. He couldn't create indoor plumbing or underfloor heating or a freaking water wheel. All of these things that Brie is capable of. And so she just floors Roger on a regular basis. So the scene where he shows Aiden the matches and he says, it's a miracle. He says, no, lad, it's science. My wife made it. She's a genius. You can just see his glow when he brags about his wife. And that makes Brianna feel so good. I love that they have that. But at the same time, I don't ever feel, especially in this episode, that Brianna gave that back to him. Because Roger is also starting to find his footing in that he takes on his first role as kind of a laymanist minister in that he performs this funeral for Granny Wilson. Then the funeral was such a good service that Tom Christie's asked him to preach the sermon on Sunday. During the funeral with Granny Wilson, I think we saw the beginnings of the Roger that we see in the books. He's very quick on his feet. He's also a very powerful presence. And when Granny Wilson and Hiram Crombie start bickering, Roger's like, good people, enough. It's not fitting and I won't have it. He steps up and really puts his foot down. It shoots to Jamie in that moment. And you almost see this sense of pride on Jamie's face after Granny Wilson dies again. And Roger picks up the sermon and keeps going. It's such an appropriate use of passage. And he's so good at delivering a message that's inclusive, fair, and not really Sermon on the Mount or Hellfire and Brimstone. It's very much a message of God and a non-denominal message at that. And I think the light comes on for Jamie. Not only does he see that Roger is very, very good at this and that he could potentially have a future at this. I think Jamie sees that probably before anybody. I really think that he picks up on that very early on in the scene, even before Roger starts to contemplate it for himself. It takes a while for Roger to fully get there, that this is the path that he wants to take. Jamie sees it. And I think he also knows how ugly things got at Ardsmere with Tom kind of performing that service of religious conduit <laughs> to the people. And it's like he says to Bree, the church in the hands of Tom Christie can be a weapon of war. Tom uses Bible verses and religious belief to motivate people into action that serves his own beliefs. Jamie fought very hard to kind of suppress that domineering personality in Ardsmere. And the last thing he wants is to bring that to Fraser's Ridge, which is kind of Jamie's safe space. He's worked very hard to create this close-knit community. And the last thing he wants is for Tom Christie to waltz in and ruin everything, knowing that Roger is very good at this kind of thing and that he's Protestant and that he's family. Jamie knows that he can rely on Roger to mediate between the Fisher folk and himself. So that's kind of where this idea starts forming. I think that that takes a little bit of stress off of Jamie's plate to know that he has an advocate in Roger and that Roger's not going to let Tom Christie walk away with it. Another thing that we learn in this episode about Roger and Brie is that they're trying for another baby, which is great news. Like, who doesn't love a baby? But at the same time, also kind of cringeworthy because when Brie is so excited about her matches invention and she's like, yeah, I have this announcement. And everybody's like, oh my God, you're pregnant. And she was like, no, I invented matches. Everybody kind of like backpedals on it. But oh man, like it was kind of funny, but also made me grit my teeth because I've seen that happen so many times in real life. People asking newly married couples, so when are you going to have a baby? When are you going to settle down? 
That's the one I get all the time. Anybody special in your life? Oh, it's just none of your business. And so, like, I get that everybody was excited at the prospect of Brie and Roger having a baby. But at the same time, they stuck their foot in their mouth. Because what we learn later in the episode is that Brie and Roger have been trying to get pregnant for several months now. It's not happening for them. And their comment, their jumping to conclusions, has only hurt Brie more than she's already hurting. Imagine that. It's not just you being curious, it could potentially make somebody feel terrible about themselves. You don't know what's going on in somebody's life. So I felt for Brie in that moment because she was so excited about this thing that she had worked so hard on. And apparently the only useful thing she can do is get pregnant. And I just, oh, I get that on such a level. I felt so terrible for her. The scene between Roger and Fergus was one of my favorite scenes of the episode. And funnily enough, this wasn't even a scene that was originally in the script. This was a scene that was added after because they're like, wait a minute, it doesn't make sense for Fergus to just show up. We need to know how he got from A to B. So they added the scene and I think that Cesar Donboy and especially Rick Rankin did such a phenomenal, phenomenal job with this. Roger was the perfect person to send after Fergus because he has a gentle side. But when gentleness fails, he can be a hard ass. And that's exactly what Fergus needed. And he needed somebody to talk real talk with him. Fergus is kind of blaming himself a lot for things beyond his control. And he needed somebody to wake him up and be like, look, I know you're going through crap, but your wife needs you. And you need to step outside of yourself for five seconds and realize that somebody else is more important than you in this moment. Roger actually has some really great dialogue here where he says, you'll regret it if you're not there. Trust me. Maybe not today, but there will come a time when you'll look at your child and you'll you'll never forgive yourself if you're not with Marsley on this blessed day. And you just know by the way Roger says it, he's speaking from experience in this instance. His snap decision to walk away from Brie and Wilmington resulted in a huge snowball effect that essentially resulted in her being assaulted by Stephen Bonnet, him missing her entire pregnancy plus the birth of their son. And if he hadn't made that decision, things would be a lot different from how they are now. And he, on some level, regrets that. He blames himself deep down and holds himself responsible for what happened to Brie because if he hadn't walked away, she wouldn't have been alone when Stephen Bonnet took advantage of her and raped her. So Roger gets it. Roger understands why Fergus is blaming himself. And they have that in common. Terrible things happened to their wives that could have been prevented if they were with them. But it doesn't change the fact that they weren't with them. And it doesn't change the fact that despite everything that's happened, Marsley needs Fergus. So I think that honestly, besides Jamie, Roger is probably the only other person that could have got through to Fergus. And I'm really glad that they didn't make it a Jamie and Fergus scene. I'm really happy with the way that the Roger Fergus scene played out. In the season premiere, we alluded to the fact that Fergus and Marsley were having issues, but we didn't really see what was causing those issues. We saw some bruises on Marsley. We saw that Fergus is drunk a lot. But other than that, didn't really get a lot of answers, just more questions. This episode provided a lot of answers. Why Fergus is drinking. The fact of the matter is that he blames himself for what happened to Marsley and Claire. When Claire is telling all of this to Jamie, she's like, I don't understand why he feels this way because it's not like there was anything that he could do. Jamie says, you think that makes any difference? If Marsley should die or mischief come to the child, do you think he'd no blame himself? You think I don't curse myself every day for what happened to you? It's just this 18th century notion that men were made to protect their women and if they're not protecting their women, they're failing at life. It's that kind of idea that is fueling all of this grief and blame and this downward spiral that Fergus feels. 
And that scene between Jamie and Claire was amazing for so many different reasons. But I think Sam Hewen did such a fan-freaking-tastic job with that scene. You can really see the pain that Jamie is going through. At the beginning of this season, when they were doing their preseason press and everything, they were talking about how everybody has suffered because of the events of the season five finale. And that everybody's struggling with it in some way, shape, or form. And I think some people are struggling with it a little bit more than others. Fergus is burying his sorrows in drink. That's a very obvious form of coping. Claire is trying to compartmentalize and it's not working. So she's having to result to ether. And I think that Jamie is dealing with so much other crap that we're not always privy to the repercussions he's experiencing because of the events of season five. It's so focused on the Indian agent storyline and the Christie's and the Fisher folk and all of his responsibilities on the ridge that sometimes we forget that Jamie is experiencing a lot of the same emotions that Fergus is. When he's telling Claire this, the overwhelming grief and emotional turmoil that we see play on his face and in his eyes. It's so powerful. It makes me feel so awful for Jamie because he knows the terrible things that his wife endured. He can't help but think about that. Like, I think that's the stuff of nightmares for him is thinking about Claire going through something like that and him not being able to help her or save her. So I think that was the first time that we really understood what Jamie's thought process was on. I mean, we saw his emotions in 512 and how he was just utterly devastated by Claire's appearance and like knowing that she was brutalized. But this was the first time that we'd ever really heard him voice that emotion. And I thought that it was a good way to show what Fergus is going through as well. But, you know, honestly, as a woman, like, yeah, I get it that Fergus is going through some shit. And maybe this is me dealing with my own version of presentism, but... I wish that Fergus would step outside of himself long enough to understand that by drowning himself in whiskey, he's doing it all over again. He's putting Marceline into a position where she's in harm's way. She's having to take care of three small children while heavily pregnant with a fourth child. She's dealing with the stress of an alcoholic husband. She's miserable. Like, she's starting to have genuine health concerns because of all of the stress that she's under. And Claire sees this as her doctor. I just wish that Fergus would understand that he's really putting Marsley in a really tough position. And I think we see them come to a breaking point in the next episode. There are a couple of interesting scenes with Marsley and Fergus. The first was the scene where Fergus suckles Marsley's breast to kind of stimulate labor. This was a scene that whenever I was at Outlandish Vancouver, Lauren and Cesar alluded to quite a bit, but, you know, for non-disclosure agreement reasons, they couldn't say expressly what the scene was. They just said there was an intimate scene written in the script that when they first read it, they weren't sure how they were going to do it. And when they got to the day and they worked with the intimacy coordinator on it and they really felt their way through the scene, they feel like they absolutely nailed it. And I agree. Yeah, I can imagine reading that in the script. I'm sure that would just be like, what the hell? How are we going to do this? But they did such a good job. It felt so natural for Marsley and Fergus to do that kind of thing. And to follow up such a heavy scene where Marsley's struggling with her mortality and feeling like she's going to die. And Fergus saying, you're not going to die because I wouldn't let you go. This beautiful, intense, really dramatic scene. And then to follow that up with a bit of comedy when Jamie and Claire and Brianna and Malva are all sitting around the table and they start to hear Fergus and Marsley getting busy in the next room. And Brianna just is like, I'm going to take a walk. <laughs> and Jamie's like, well, if that's what the wee bugger's up to, I've got posts that needs sorting. <laughs> And they just walk away and then it's just Malva and Clara left like awkwardly listening to Marsley and Fergus have sex in the next room. <laughs> it was a good scene. Like it got some giggles out of me. But then like the awkwardness between Malva and Clara actually turns into a really good bonding moment. Almost a mother-daughter moment. I think that Claire realizes that Malva doesn't really have any women to look up to or ask questions. And the comment that Malva makes about, I thought that she was in pain, but 
you mean some women actually like it? And Claire was like, yes. And she says, you mean sinners, like whores. And Claire's like, no. And then she starts to realize that this is the lie that Malva's been fed, that if you enjoy sex, you must be a sinner. Ugh, I just, I feel so awful for her. She's just so young and she's been so sheltered and, oh man, it's just awful. I do, like, Malva's one of those characters that it's really easy to see her as a villain, but when you understand everything that that girl went through in her life, ugh, it's hard not to feel sympathy for her, honestly. After everything's said and done and... Little Henri Christian comes into the world as if his birth wasn't dramatic enough. Then we have the fallout from the birth because little Henri Christian is a dwarf. For reasons we'll explore in the next episode, Fergus is devastated. Like we already knew from Jamie's comment, if mischief should come to the child, you think he wouldn't blame himself? So here we go. Mischief has come to the child and Fergus can't even process. I think he tried really hard to sober up and to be there for Marsley and to be the man that she needed him to be. He was excited to have a son. His wife was okay. Things were looking up. And then he looks into the eyes of this little baby and he sees his own failure. He sees somebody that he's never going to be able to protect. And I think that is rock bottom for Fergus. All he wants as a man is to be able to provide for and protect his family. And he realizes that this is something he can't protect his son from. This is who his son is. To juxtapose that with after Fergus walks out, Claire hands the baby to Marsley. Marsley's devastated that Fergus walked away, that he walked out on her. And to see that little baby in her arms, and we see all of that devastation just turned around and funneled into this outpouring of love, the most love any woman could ever feel, the love that you feel when you look into your newborn's face, holding them for the first time. It's so beautiful to witness. You have the complete separate ends of the spectrum. You have unconditional love and overwhelming grief. To know that that's how far apart Fergus and Marsley are. That's how much separates them. It's devastating for viewers who have come to feel that Fergus and Marsley are so strong and so in love. And to know that they're so far apart two episodes into season six is just, you don't possibly see how they're going to get past it at this point. So it really does leave quite a bit of a cliffhanger moving into 603. When Fergus does walk out after the birth, there's this look that Jamie and Claire share. It is that look of what we feared happening has happened. You thought Fergus blamed himself for what happened to Marsley. Well, now he blames himself for what happened to his son. It was really just one of Jamie's worst fears. This was up there on the list of worst case scenarios. And to see that look shared between Jamie and Claire where we're like, yeah, that happened. That was really powerful for me as a viewer. It's one of those moments where so much was said without saying anything at all. That wraps up my analysis of the episode. As far as performance of the episode, I thought Lauren Lyle was amazing. She blew my socks off. Her birth scene was good, and I know she did a lot of research on it and was really excited for people to see that, and she really advocated for it. She was amazing in everything, so emotionally deep, and the scene where she asked Claire if she could write to her mother because she was afraid she was going to die. The scene with Cesar where he was saying, I'll never let you go. Oh, man, it was so good. It was all so good. She did a fantastic job. As for quote of the episode, I always try to find something that either really makes me laugh, really strikes me as inspirational, or really sums up the episode. For me, the quote of the episode this week was a Jamie line where he is talking to Ian. He says, For those of us who have this knowledge of the future, it must inform our decisions. You have it now too. But take heed, it can be both a blessing and a curse. That's a journey that Ian really goes on, especially in this episode, to learn that, yeah, we may know what happens, but the curse of it is most of the time we can't change the outcome. We're just cursed with that knowledge. It's very easy, I think, for people to think that, oh, well, they know what's going to happen, so they can just weave through all the bad things and come out unscathed. It's not that simple. Like, there's a lot of complex morality to being a time traveler and having knowledge of the future. Alrighty, guys, that wraps up what I have to say on 602 Allegiance. As always, I open it up to you guys to let me know what you thought of this episode. 
So without further ado, let's get into listener comments. Joan Cohen says, Terrific episode. In some ways, the writing has benefited from the shortened season. The episode is tightly written and gets to the heart of the story without a lot of extraneous material. All the book dialogue is a welcome bonus. I'm so glad Marceline and Fergus's story arc is getting its due in this half of the season. Every bit of Lauren's performance was spot on. Impatience with being very pregnant, frustration with Fergus's behavior, and fear over giving birth. I thought Cesar did a marvelous job as a man who has lost his way. Yet he was able to show tenderness and love for Marsley when she truly needed him. They have fantastic chemistry. You know, they told me in Seattle, Joan, that they didn't even have a chemistry read. Like they were cast independently and then just thrown together. And stars got so freaking lucky with them. I was mind blown by that, that they didn't even have a chemistry read. I was like, what? Anyway, back to your comment. Joan continues to say, Jessica Reynolds' performance during the sex talk scene was very nuanced. She made me question whether she truly didn't know about sexual pleasure or whether she was playing Claire so that she would appear wholesome and naive. I'm so glad Roger is finally being given the chance to shine as well. I love how he took charge during the funeral and how forceful he was with Fergus, yet did it in a way that was true to his character. Roger and Bree's calmness is a welcome foil to the chaotic emotions of all the other characters. Although I wonder if Roger showing Aiden the match was the wisest idea, considering how superstitious the Fisher folk are. I appreciated that Jamie took Ian's concerns to heart, even if they initially conflicted with his intentions. I think the idea of having to walk the tightrope between two allegiances resonated with Jamie, since he's had to do it so often himself. The one thing that irked me was the scene between Jamie and Claire. It felt forced and awkward, especially afterwards when Jamie had not a hair or bit of clothing out of place. It was just as bad as the stable sex scene. Whoa, hot take on that, Joan. Oh my lord, I thought it was fantastic. I mean, yeah, it was a little weird that his hair or clothes weren't disheveled a little bit. But honestly, like, I actually really loved that. So that's surprising to me. I had not heard that strong of an emotion before coming out of that. Okay. Finishing up with her comments, she says, I did like the callback to Mrs. Baird's from the very first episode, however. I realized there was a lot of constraints, but other intimate scenes this season were much truer to character. I wish we could have had Claire laughing hysterically when she heard about the Cherokee women in Jamie's bed. If I remember correctly, he didn't tell her about that until much later on. Like, I don't think that he told her about that right away when that happened. So we could still get that. We could still get Claire laughing hysterically at Jamie. That blows my mind. And I mean, obviously, you heard me in earlier in the episode. I was like, I loved the choreography. I thought it was so good. I love the lightheartedness. So, wow. Okay. Well, alrighty then. See, this is why we do these listener comments. I love knowing what you guys think. Moving on, Erin Marie says, 602 is one of my favorites of season six, mostly because of the more lighthearted moments, even with the more dramatic themes. I found Jamie's change of heart to be very moving as it was the influence of young Ian that pushed him to advocate for the Cherokee to fight for themselves come what may, as he says. Jamie's interaction with the Cherokee women was such a funny moment, followed by the joyous reunion with Claire. I love when they take book dialogue and interweave it so perfectly into the show. I like you. I love you. Dot, dot, dot. Marsley's birth had me completely on edge, knowing the situation was risky, and I was so impressed with Roger going to get Fergus and truly taking on a leadership role. The humor during the closed-door moments of Fergus and Marsley were just perfect without taking away from the more serious discussions going on. Jessica Reynolds is continuing to be a perfect Malva, letting us know that something is up, but taking time to get there. Love this episode, and it definitely has viewers ready for more. Yeah, that's kind of how I took the scene with Claire as well, between Claire and Malva. I definitely think that she just had no idea that sex could be an enjoyable thing. And given her history, that doesn't surprise me one bit that she didn't know it could be an enjoyable experience. Last comment of the night is from Patty Hacks LeCompte. She said, episode 602, I enjoyed the title card with Adzo on Major McDonald's coat. John Bell is great as Ian. From humor to serious scenes, he really brings young Ian to life. Sam Hewen's expressions during scenes with the Indian women and later when Jamie returned home to Claire were perfect. Loved it when he threw his coat at Mrs. Bug. The actors did a wonderful job of adapting the scenes of Henri Christian's birth. I didn't think they would be able to do this story as told in the book. 
Yeah, I was kind of surprised that they chose to do this story exactly as they did in the books as well. I'm not really sure what I was expecting, but I was definitely surprised that they did it verbatim from the books. That wraps up my analysis of 602 Allegiance. Before I let you go, I want to remind you that I am doing a Droughtlander book club Facebook Live on my private group TSF Obsassinax on August 13th at 4 p.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time. That is the second book in the Celtic Brooch series by Catherine Lowry Logan. If you want to catch up on the first book, that would be The Ruby Brooch, and I did a Facebook Live about that as well a couple weeks ago, and you can catch the recorded version of the podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. So if you would like to participate in the second edition of Droughtlander Book Club with me, please feel free to join my private group, TSF Obsassnax. Just make sure to answer all three admission questions and agree to follow the rules. Like I said, that will be August 13th at 4 p.m. Eastern time. Not really any new Outlander news this week. A couple of weeks ago, we got some casting announcements for Rachel and Denzel Hunter. They become critical characters in season seven, so I'm super excited to see what they can bring to the table. So Rachel Hunter will be played by Izzy Michael Small, and Denzel will be played by Joey Phillips. So like I said, super excited to see what they can bring to the table. They're going to have lots of great content and I cannot wait for you show watchers to meet the hunters. They're two of my favorite characters from An Echo in the Bone. Other than that, haven't really had any season seven news, no other book news or anything like that. So kind of all quiet on the Outlander front right now. But rest assured, as soon as we get any sort of news at all, I will drop it on social media and I will make sure to mention it on my next episode of the Sassanac Files. So with all of that, you guys have a fantastic week. Make sure to join me next week for my episode on 603 Temperance. It's going to be a killer. And I'm excited to talk to you about it. So. Until then, you guys stay safe out there, and I will chat at you later. Bye.